Hello and welcome back to the Asset Allocator podcast, where we try to look under the bonnet of the market with leading asset allocators. I'm David Thorpe, contributing editor at Asset Allocator. Joining me today are John Stockford, head of multi-asset income at 91, and David Baxter, funds editor at Investors Chronicle. Thank you both for joining me today. John, I suppose one of the biggest questions on on allocators and market participants' minds right now is around the role of bonds in portfolios. There was, of course, a long period of strong performance from the asset class. This year has been tougher, but from an income perspective, yields have risen. And indeed, with more clouds on the economic horizon, could their defensive qualities start to make them more appealing in the months ahead? Uh, that's a great question, David. Um, so I think, you know, we we all got used to a 40-year bond bull market where it was pretty easy. Bonds tended to rally over time. Uh, returns were elevated. And certainly for most of the last 20 years or so, they've acted as a, a good diversifier against equities. The problem with that is um, you tend to have periods where bonds and equities become more positively correlated when you have a common driver. And the common driver that we've had recently, and the thing that's particularly upset bond markets, uh, has been um, the significant pickup in inflation, uh, and latterly, um, the response to that um, from central bankers in terms of taking policy from super loose levels to tighter levels. And when you get those common drivers, unfortunately, everything tends to move in lockstep and and bonds lose their attraction as a diversifier. But also, given where we were coming from in terms of valuations, bonds had sort of a second strike against them, which was um, they were pretty expensive, particularly in a a rising inflation environment. So you had uh, a double whammy. I, I think we're starting to get to levels where selectively bonds are becoming more interesting. And you can begin to paint a scenario where um, you know, if, if a certain set of outcomes happens, um, bonds might act as a diversifier again. So I think they are becoming more interesting as a portfolio component, but I think you need to be somewhat careful. I, I, I think that the long period of tailwinds for bonds on a sort of secular basis are probably behind us. Policy is still loose and likely to be tightened. There are quite a few reasons why maybe central banks might even have to tighten more than the market currently expects. And so I think you have to be careful about using bonds as a diversifier, but we have begun to add selectively back to fixed income. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Um, David Baxter, uh, what, what are you hearing in the, in the market? Are, are people starting to uh, look at fixed income a little bit more favourably? I think so. I mean, I guess we've even heard it on um, some of our kind of previous podcasts. We've seen, we've heard perhaps much the same thing of, of some selectors are um, kind of carefully treading back in, um, whether it's kind of things like short duration investment grade or whether it is things like kind of government bonds. Um, but John, I did want to ask kind of what's, I suppose the kind of market conditions we're in now are always interesting because perhaps they, work as almost a stress test of what what does actually work as a as a diversifier and i know every sell-off is different but if if you have had those kind of classic concerns about bonds um where have you been turning to for diversification and 
you know, what's worked? Is there anything you've been kind of disappointed with or pleasantly surprised with? So, so I think I mean, we, we've basically gone back to um, first principles and, and the, the safest hedge for equity risk are equity futures and options. Mm. Um, and so when we have wanted to de-risk the portfolio, we've tended to increase hedges and we've tended to do that at times of uh, apparent market stress. And, and, and so we've been doing that um, recently. I, I, for a while, options, I think, were a really good way to hedge downside risk because implied volatility the the cost of hedging was unusually low or at least it had been at the sort of low levels close to the low levels that had been at um, for most of the the sort of um, bull market of the last uh, 11 or 12 years latterly with you know the rise in uncertainty option pricing has become more expensive so that's i think it, it's probably quite timely that fixed income is becoming more interesting because some of the other ways of hedging risk uh, are maybe beginning to look a little bit too expensive options being one of those but e even having said that i think you can selectively look for cheaper hedges so for example uh, a market that we've been looking at is japan so japan japanese equities have outperformed uh, that, and 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 you haven't had a lot of the sort of big moves you've seen in um, the us uk and elsewhere uh, and so the price of downside protection there is is quite low, and so that's something we're looking at potentially for adding a little bit of uh, um, protection in the portfolio. Um, and then if we move to an asset class which is almost as unpopular as bonds have been, UK equities. Um, we have obviously seen considerable outflows from those funds in in recent years, and there's this this narrative that. Uh, the, the FTSE is becoming a sort of dinosaur market. But is there something more structural going on? Is it a case of traditional home bias among domestic investors dissipating? Or is it all really just a reaction to shorter term factors? And really, is it a market that you're that you're becoming keen on right now? So, so again, a really interesting question. I mean, our, our approach is we start with security selection and we tend to use indices as uh, hedging vehicles. And we need to obviously be careful that what we're using to hedge um, is sort of a, a sensible um, proxy for, for what we own. So we're, we're looking for um, resilient income. Essentially, we build a portfolio from securities where we've got a lot of confidence in the underlying cash flows, their ability to pay uh, coupons and dividends uh, and then we essentially looking to compound that to generate uh, a reasonably um, defensive total total return. Um, so the foot and our, our universe is global. We we look across the world, but then hedge um, much of that exposure back to to sterling and try not to take too much currency risk because for us it's a bit of a random walk on the whole. Although it may be possible to take some modest position some of the time. Having said all of that, I mean, I think the FTSE has been quite interesting. For a long time, it underperformed because essentially it was a lot of old economy uh, um, parts of the market uh, and, and you know, had exposure to things like energy, resources, um, builders, banks, um, which on the whole were, were out of favour. Clearly, more recently, it's done relatively well. And that's because some of those out of favour sectors suddenly um, have become more interesting in an inflationary environment. So um, a, a lot of those stocks ha have actually 
uh, perform well in in what's been a sort of relative bear market. So the FTSE's held up, I think, um, for a lot of people, surprisingly well. Partly probably because a lot of those things were cheap, and partly because the sort of um, near term inflationary dynamic has been been supportive. It, to our minds, I think a lot of that is starting to look a little bit mature. Um, you know, so energy's outperformed for a, a, a quite a while now, and and maybe for a while at least we might see a little bit of a, a correction there. Um, I, I think a lot of other parts of you know the global market have have repriced. Um, so I think we're less convinced that the FTSE is necessarily going to lead the upside or protect as well to the downside. So we're quite happy not really to have exposure or to use it at the margin to hedge some of the positions we have got. Having said that, we own some FTSE constituents. So we own uh, some bits of, we own some material stocks where we think they have particular um, support from, you know, structural supply and demand dynamics and are exhibiting decent capital discipline. So they're not, you know, spending their cash flow windfalls, they're passing them back to to shareholders. Uh, we own uh, a couple of um the pharma companies uh, and so on. So we we do have exposure to individual UK stocks, but we're not we don't tend to be buyers of the FTSE. Mm. Um, um, it's interesting you mentioned the kind of income front as well. I suppose if you look at kind of dividend reports from this year and perhaps the back end of last year as well, there's, there's been the kind of talk of a big surge in dividend payments, but. The kind of note of caution about you know much of this being linked to things like like the miners and you know people saying will this give way at some point and there is there is the risk you sort of alluded to there um bar some of the names you've mentioned where where in general are you kind of looking for sector wise when you're you're seeking out income i mean what what are now the kind of interesting stories with so, so so we are we're somewhat um sector and and geographically agnostic we're all we're looking for is companies where we have a high degree of confidence that the the cash flows they generate are essentially in excess of what they need and are likely to hold up in periods of market stress and there's um scope to uh increase and grow dividends uh over time and, and so we own some defensive stocks and we own some um cyclical stocks but it's it's done on a case-by-case -case basis so if, if you looked at the resources for example we have some exposure to um, stocks that we think probably will benefit a little bit from uh, some reopening and the stimulus that we're seeing in China um, and have got good structural stories. So we have uh, you know, a, a sort of general miner that has exposure to a, a range of commodities, but we also have uh, exposure to three um, copper producers uh, three steel companies where there's a sort of slightly different structural story, which is essentially capacity is being reduced partly for environmental reasons. Uh, and also there's sort of been deglobalization. So China's not dumping steel on, on the global market uh, uh, anymore. Um, and then uh, we also have a, a, a sort of fertilizer uh, um, producer. And I think, you know, that fits with both, um, higher energy prices, gas prices generally, because it, a lot of the sort of feedstock for, for fertilizers is essentially, um, uh, you know, energy linked. But also, you know, as we know, there's a, essentially a, a, um, a interruption to supply from what's going on in Ukraine and Russia. 
Uh, and so that again, so on, on the sort of more cyclical, more sort of commodity linked names, those are some of the sort of areas we're in. But in, you know, uh, staples, I and mean, we had reduced a bit in staples given how well they'd held up. But I think there are some very good companies where you've got uh, decent pricing power, decent product mix, um, you know, strong brand uh, um, loyalty. And, and I think you can sort of continue to see good performance. So, I mean, if you're picking names, uh, we own, uh, I assume we can use names, um, we own things like uh, Procter & Gamble, uh, Nestle, Diageo, and some uh, uh, staples we've sold down and, and uh, over the last sort of um, six to nine months because we don't think they have those kind of uh, um, that kind of pricing power. Um, and then yes, we've got positions in in pharmaceutical companies. We've got we we like the um, uh, sort of structural story in the sort of semiconductor uh, marketplace. Uh, um, we have. Uh, limited exposure within industrials generally um because we're sort of concerned about the cyclical backdrop and also in particular uh demand for goods you know one of the consequences of of the pandemic was people bought lots of stuff companies then reordered lots of inventories and we just think that sort of um goods demand uh backdrop is is a bit little bit satiated and 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 that's not great for for the producers of, of some of those kinds of things so uh, you know and there i can come up with other examples too pretty broad mix of of individual stocks but it is individual stocks it's not sector allocation on the whole thank you for that john um that brings us to i guess um one of the things that you've referenced in your remarks today and in previous um conversations that we've had is is valuation but I'm amazing how how helpful are conversations around valuation to uh, to clients and um, and the way that we talk about it and you know talking about valuation relative to history or valuation relative to another asset. Do, do you think that that's still central to how uh, how conversations should should go with clients? Uh, yes, I do think it's pretty important. I think it tells you something about the sort of medium term prospective return um so you can have a great uh, asset but if it's very expensive um your return expectations can be be relatively low so when we're looking for um sources of resilient income valuation is a, a key part of that but also clearly we're, we're quite keen to make sure that the income really is resilient that there is a strong asset base and business model behind it that can can persist and and my background's in fixed income so i'm i sort of look at equities a little bit like a, a cash flow stream and and so naturally for me income investing makes sense i'm trying to compound income but i need it priced at at, at the right sort of yield essentially i think the problem with valuation is it can be over can be dominated by other factors so if, if i were ordering the things i think are most important i would start with what we would call the fundamentals so that's both the sort of nature of the business and how it operates but also the environment we're in and the environment we're in at the moment is quite uncertain valuations i would then probably put second and say okay we're looking for things that the environment suits or are likely to be resilient but at the right price and then the final thing i would look at is essentially investor sentiment and positioning it's no good buying something if everybody's already long and telling you it's the greatest thing since sliced bread because it's probably um, going to struggle 
similarly, if everyone hates it uh, and you know nobody wants to talk about it or everyone's got a bad story to tell, but you're convinced of the, the fundamental case and the valuation argument, then you know I think it's got potential for people to change their mind over time and 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 for um, it to do relatively well. So so valuation is important. It's maybe not the most important thing all the time, but you definitely have to build it in. In, in terms of valuations, is it how easy or otherwise is it currently to price things in? I mean, I know you mentioned fundamentals, but people, when, for example, I suppose this year, people have been looking at, you know, the previous market leaders sort of coming off a lot. Not everyone has been sort of screaming to kind of buy in because they've, they've still felt a lot of uncertainty on things like the path of interest rate rises and the extent to which different things can be sort of priced in. So, so I think you do need to understand the context and you do need to think about that. And, and we mm-hmm. tend to think in scenarios. So, you know, we tend to think about, okay, what is what do we think the market is currently pricing? What's the consensus? And then what are the sort of risk cases around that? And at the moment, I think we are relatively cautious overall because we think the biggest risk is still to the downside. That until we see evidence that inflation is peaking, and there might be a few straws in the wind there, but until we see that central banks are on, you know, uh, inflation fighting watch at, at the expense of everything else, they're not going to worry too much if financial conditions tighten because of uh, lower stock prices, because actually that's potentially helpful for them to slow inflation down. So, so we're in this sort of dynamic where the risks are that they just keep tightening until something breaks um, and you get recession. Um, having said that, I think, you know, there are the, the sort of central case that is probably more benign than that uh, and reflects the fact that you've got generally pretty strong balance sheets at the, the, the corporate and consumer level. Um, and I think there are decent reasons why inflation probably is beginning to top out and may come down and may relieve some of that pressure on on central banks before we get a recession so that that sort of broad context having said that as well i mean i think there are other areas you know it's worth maybe looking at at companies that can benefit from pricing power if inflation continues to um or do well in an inflationary environment so the, the resources and some of the staples we talked about if that environment persists um it's quite likely that having although they've risen a fair amount that real interest rates can potentially rise further as central banks tighten and so the caution around some of those market leaders you mentioned that did really well in a period of falling real interest rates you know i think it's probably too early to get excited about some of those (laughs) similarly people don't really like financials um despite the fact that potentially you're in an environment where banks and 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 financial companies can earn more uh, on uh, in a sort of higher rate environment and generally balance sheets are in good nick so the sort of likelihood of of big uh you know unexpected losses on uh, lending and so on i think is uh, is pretty good companies and individuals have have deleveraged and the scope to releverage over time is is significant so you know you can look at who who are the beneficiaries and who are the losers if real interest rates continue to rise uh, and at, uh, you know we we would still be cautious on the sort of long duration tech and particularly the sort of unprofitable parts of tech. Um, and I think we'd still be constructive on on financials for, for, for those kind of reasons. Thank you for that, John. And, and if I could just unpack one, one of those areas that you touched on, which is commodities. 
um, you know, it's been an obvious and intuitive uh, trade over over the past year to date, I suppose, to, to own commodities for inflation hedge. So obvious, I didn't do it, of course, in my own portfolio. <laughs> I'm sure rational uh, market participants such as you guys did. Um, but how do you think about them in, in terms of valuation right now and in terms of um, forward uh, prospects? It, it kind of feels to me like quite often the market has a, a recency bias and decides that whatever is happening today is the start of a, a great new trend that will continue for, for multi-decades. And there seems to be a bit of a hint, maybe, that, that that's where the market is starting to think about commodities now. I, I, and I, I think that's a, you know, a genuine concern. And I, I would differentiate probably a little bit between energy and uh, some of the other sort of um, uh, broad commodities, because I think, you know, the energy has sort of been front and center of, of the current um, sort of price pressures. And, and I think that's potentially more fully reflected in earnings expectations and, and and so on. Whereas I think there are individual metals uh, and we sort of mentioned um, the sort of uh, sort of fertilizer um, area where we think that there's still upside to, to earnings to price in and the structural story we think is pretty strong. So, and, and then there's maybe also cyclical elements as well. If you believe that China is, is likely to sort of gradually reopen and should benefit from um, the extent of the stimulus that we've we've seen so far, even if it uh, initially was sort of slightly underwhelming, and even if you know the risk remains that you'll get some periodic uh, um, COVID-related shutdown. So, you know, as I said, we we think there's some interesting opportunities within copper. We think that's a sort of structural beneficiary of um, the sort of transition uh, um, to to low carbon. Um, it is very supply constrained. Um, it, we think it's not, you know, particularly aggressively priced relative to to other other commodities, and and we see companies generally um, remaining relatively shareholder friendly. So we're comfortable that that's somewhere we can see upside. Steel is a sort of longer term story, and it's a sort of similar idea in some ways, and I think it's linked to transition. It's it's a heavy. Uh, Sort of traditional steel manufacturing is sort of heavy carbon, uh, uh, um, a heavy sort of carbon in, intense business, uh, and companies are trying to move away from that. And and so you're not seeing the kind of capacity increases. If anything, you know, capacity is becoming more constrained, um, and, and we think that you know pricing there remains attractive as well. But it's it's maybe a slightly longer term play. Thank you, John. Um, David, have you um, have you been hearing about? Um, people increasing exposure to to commodities in, in your part of the market um, to an extent um, but I suppose with the caveat that it is such a um, kind of volatile part in the market so I've spoken to some selectors who have been using a variety of diversified commodity ETFs perhaps taking less of a granular approach than the likes of John um, but I suppose it is interesting yeah maybe you do see more of a you see that granularity come into uh, come into greater popularity as people people think less about the broad surge that we've seen in the last year or so and maybe more about what's actually kind of looking interesting on a on a more fundamental perspective. And I, I would add, you know, it's within the context of a pretty well diversified portfolio. So it's not as though we have mm. very heavy exposure, but I think having some mm. of that flavor in the portfolio for us um, makes sense to get in the kind of backdrop we are. Um, and I, I you know part of the um, 
nature of transition, I think, is, you know, price is an important component in uh, essentially changing how people behave and, and stimulating investment in key areas. So commodity prices are likely, I think, to be, you know, the cycle notwithstanding are likely to be relatively well supported because we need a lot of investment to go in to essentially affect the, the transition away from high carbon intensity. Thank you for that, John Stopford, Head of Multi-Asset Income at 91, and David Baxter, Funds Editor at Investors Chronicle, for joining me this week. And thank you all for listening. Do remember to tune in to the next edition of Asset Allocator Podcast in a couple of weeks. Thank you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.